I want to speak to you about the difference between discipleship and sonship. There is a difference between being a son or a daughter of the Lord and being a disciple of the Lord. And I hope from what I present to you here this morning that you'll be able to see that if, if you can see the difference that the Scripture makes between following Jesus as a disciple and just simply being a child of God, it can clear up a lot of confusion about various verses of Scripture, which I hope to use show you a couple ways after we go through this that you can see where it's very clear in the Scripture there are disciples who are children of God, and then there are children of God who just frankly don't discipline themselves in a way to become a disciple of Christ. Now, the definition of disciple, the definition of disciple, I got this from Webster's 1828 Dictionary. I, I like this. It really it stuck out with me. The way that Webster defined a disciple, an example that Webster gave in 1828 was, a disciple is a constant attendant of Christ. A constant attendant of Christ. Now, we can all say to ourselves how we have failed in that in our lives. Have we not? Have we, not? we may be failing in that this very morning to be a constant attendant of Christ. That is the Webster's definition of a disciple, and we're going to see what the Bible definition of a disciple is. But before we do that, let me just give you a couple, two or three verses of Scripture about being a son or a daughter of God. And understand the distinction between being a disciple and just being a child of God. Look at John 1 and 12. But as many as received Him, to them gave He power to become the sons of God. To them that believe on His name, which were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now understand what He's saying there. The ones that received Him, that word received is very important because it is not the word accept. It is not those that accepted Him. I've always used the example of the vase where you see a dead, inanimate object, a vase of flowers without any flowers in it. It's dead. It cannot accept flowers. No, it would be silly for that vase to look up at you and say, I don't want these, or I think I'll take these. As a matter of fact, I'd probably run out the back door if the vase did talk to me and say that. No, the difference between accepting and receiving is... As a vase is dead and is an inanimate object, does not have life in it, the vase can only receive flowers. Now, that just makes common sense, doesn't it? And when you find the word receive in the word of God, it's a reason that it's there. It says, you have to quicken who were dead in trespasses and in sins. A dead child of God cannot say, oh, thank you, or I think I will, or I think I won't. It's dead. And that's why you'll always find... The word receive used when it comes to your salvation. It's never the word accept. It's always the word receive. Because something that's dead cannot accept anything. And that's why it says in Psalms also, by the way, thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. When God makes the child of God willing through the Spirit, through the new birth, they He makes them willing. There is no possibility that they won't receive what He gives them. Amen. And He says, as many as received them, to them gave He power. So in other words, when you were born again by the grace of God, you were given the power. What is the power? It's not the, the human nature power because it fails. It doesn't even seek God. It's dead in sins. It is the power of God, right. you see. You say, well, that says I might I might become a child of God. It doesn't say that, does it? You will become a child of God. It says He will give you the power when you're born again, when you receive Him in the new birth, He gives you the power to become. In other words, at the moment that you're born again, you become a child of God. That's a verse of Scripture that talks about 
sonship, being a son of God. You say, well, how did that happen, Brother Tim? Don't you have to make a choice? Well, I've already told you that the dead inanimate object, the vase, never chooses to receive the flowers. No, it has no ability to do that. And a child of God, known before the world was formed, has no ability to say, well, I'll take it or I won't. It says, well, how does it happen? They were born, verse 13, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh. It's not because you you had a good family that you're a child of God. And it's not because you willed yourself into it to be a child of God. And it's not because of any other man, woman, or child. Your mother, your father, your grandmother, your grandfather doesn't will that upon you. It says, but it's of God. See? So your status as a son or a daughter of God is because you have received the Spirit of God in the new birth and you have become a child of God when you receive the Spirit of God. Let me give you another verse. Galatians 4 and verse 6. And this is talking about how you are a son or a daughter. Now, now you sisters, don't worry. It always says sons. It doesn't say daughters. It doesn't mean he doesn't have any daughters. Okay, It just means that he's using the phrase or the word son or sons to demonstrate a child of God. So it can be an old man, a young man, a middle-aged man, an old woman, a young woman, a middle-aged woman, or a child. See? Sons covers everything when it comes to the family of God. Galatians 4 and verse 6. Notice what he says. The language is very clear. And because ye are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. It does not say in order for you to one day make the choice to be a son... He says, because you're already a son, that He sends forth the Spirit of His Son into your heart. And is there a choice in there? Is there an accepting in there? No, it's a, it is a non-volitional reception by the child of God, and it's a volitional or an active movement by God Himself. See? Right. So He moves upon you. You say, well, how does He know who to move upon? Yeah. It says, because you are sons and daughters. It's because of the covenant of grace that was in place before this world was even formed. He knew you in a loving way. And He wrote your name in the Lamb's Book of Life. And it's not a small number. It's not a few people. It is a number that that we cannot encompass in our minds. It's so great. Because He says it's out of every kindred and tribe and people and nation. So the sons and daughters of God are so numerous, like the sands of the sea, the stars of the sky, uh, as Abraham was told by God Himself, you can't even don't even try to number them. And if anybody, I've heard people say, well, those old Baptists down there, you know, they just believe it's just a few, you know, it's, it's the, those few and no more. I tell you, I've never heard a sermon like that. And I'm not ever going to preach a sermon like that. I'm telling you, God's people, the sons and daughters of God are so numerous that we cannot count them. Thank goodness God has them numbered, though. If you believe the Lord can tell the number of the stars, then you know for certainty that He can tell the number of His children. And as a matter of fact, it's so personal with Him that He's got you written in the palm of His hand. That's what Christ said. And no man can pluck them out of My hand. I and My Father are one, He says in John 10. So understand, being a son of God, a daughter of God, is a different subject altogether from being a disciple of God. Look at Hebrews, one more verse on sonship. Hebrews 2 and verse 10. Talking about the work of Christ. Hebrews 2 and verse 10. For it became Him, or it was appropriate for Christ, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, and bringing many sons unto glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings, or mature through sufferings. It was appropriate for Christ to come to this earth, to suffer in the flesh, And he says in Peter that we should arm ourselves likewise with the same mind that was in Christ who suffered in the flesh. 
He says it was appropriate for him to be made in the flesh, all God and all man. What was the purpose of that? In bringing many sons unto glory. Now that many is a description of how many sons he has. He has many sons, many daughters. See, it's a number that you cannot number, just like the stars of the sky, the sands of the sea. So these verses talk about being a son of God, being a daughter of God, being a child of God. But there are many other verses, and I submit to you, there's more verses in the Bible, especially the New Testament, about being a disciple of Christ than there are about being a child of God. I want to show some of those to you. Remember the definition of disciple. A son or a daughter of God is one that has been touched by the grace of God. It'll never leave. Once the Spirit takes up residence in the heart of a child of God, it never leaves. You say, well, you can't see much manifestation of it in a life like Lot, can you? You're exactly right. But I assure you, God himself says Lot was a child of God. Even though he didn't act like a child of God. Even though when the last time you read about him, he's in a horrible condition. We don't glorify his horrible condition. We don't lift up the fact that he lived a pitiful life like he did. And down in Sodom like he did. And ruined his whole family. But the point is this. The point I'm making about sons and daughters of God is once you're a son of God, once you're a daughter of God, there's no changing that. Amen. And that's by the strength and power of God. And discipleship is a whole different ball game. It's a whole different playing field, you might say. And let's consider that. Remember the definition of a disciple is a constant attendant of Christ. Well, automatically, I believe we could all say we all fail in that. <laughs> to be a con- Wouldn't that be wonderful? To never be distracted, but to be a- able to be a constant attendant of Jesus Christ. You know, I want to submit to you that if you want to be a constant attendant of Jesus Christ, you can't categorize your life. You can't say, okay, well, I've got my work world, I've got my family world, I've got my church world, and none of these never need to intersect. You see, that's not, there's no way you can be a disciple of Christ. You say, well, I've got my school world, I've got, I got my school friends, I've got my church friends, I've got my church family, I've got the church body, and I've got my work friends, and I've got my internet friends, and I've got all these different segments to my life. You can't be a disciple of Christ and not, and have those type of segments in your life. It doesn't work that way. So let's see how it does work. I want you to turn to Luke, the 14th chapter, as we consider what it means to be a disciple. And I want you to notice here that there were great multitudes following Jesus. So let's get into the mind of Christ just a little bit here. Great multitudes, Luke 14 and verse 25. It says, there went great multitudes with him and he turned and he said unto them. So get the picture in your mind. Now, this this isn't a small crowd of people. Larger crowd than what we have here this morning. Probably, I don't know, 500, 1,000. There was a lot of people following Jesus. And, it, you know, you, you could just picture him walking across the field, and here he is at the point. It's like an arrow of people, you know, just filing behind him and just following along, just watching him and waiting to see what he's going to do. And as he walks along, he stops, and he turns around, and he addresses them. And this is what he says. He says, if any man come to me, now they're already following him physically. You understand they're walking along physically. He says, if any man come to me, And hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters. Yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. You say, well, that's just horrible. I didn't know. I've always been told God was a God of love. (laughs) Well, just relax. It doesn't mean uh, that you're supposed to hate your mother, father, brother, sister, in the sense of being mad at them or angry at them. That's in, in this circumstance right here, if you'll look at the definition of the word hate, it actually means to love less. That's what it means. Now when you're dealing with Jacob and Esau over there, that's not the definition of it. It doesn't it doesn't even include that in the definition of it. But this word here, because think about it, he's not telling you, he's not advocating for you to hate someone in the sense of a sinful hate. 
It just simply means to put Him first. That's what it means. Put Him first. You say, you telling me i got to put Him over my father? Yes. My mother? What about my wife? The Lord tells me to be one with my wife. That's exactly right. And if you put Him first, you will be one with your wife. You see, that's the key to it. You say, well, how can that be? How can you step a step back and expect to go two steps forward? Hey, welcome to the kingdom of God. Uh, less is more and more is less. And the least shall be greatest and the greatest shall be the least. You see, that's the way it works in the kingdom of God. The way up is down in the kingdom of God. And the way down is to lift yourself up. You see, Jesus is telling them, all these people are following him. They're all coming along behind him. And he looks at them and he says, if you really want to follow me, if you want to be my constant attendant, he says that you have to love me more than the things that you have and the relationships that you have in your life. He says, if any man hate not his father and his mother and his wife and his children and his brethren and his sisters. And now here's the part that gets me right. You say, well, that's amazing. No, here's the part that, that I have trouble with. You say, well, yeah, I don't have any, any trouble in hating my wife sometimes. She's real mean to me. No. <laughs> You're missing the point. You know, we need to have a special session after this sermon is over for you to understand that that means to love, to put Jesus first. It doesn't mean to sinfully hate. One reason you know that's a fact because nothing sinful ever came out of the mouth of Jesus. So it can't mean anything sinful, see? But the hardest part I have with this verse right here is where he says to hate your own life. You understand what that means? We all have lives and you can spend a lifetime sitting here observing all of your individual lives and the different veins and and tributaries of where you go and what you do and who you're associated with. We all have our own lives, don't we? And Jesus says that we are to prioritize Him even over our own lives. You know what that means? That means the things we do. It means the things we think. It means the things uh, the, the things we feel. That's a tough one right there. And I just don't feel like I'm being treated right. Or I just don't feel like doing this today. Or I don't feel like going to church. Or I just, I got a headache. You know, long about, I've heard people say, well, they get a headache on Wednesday and they already decide, well, I can't go to church Sunday. I got this headache on Wednesday, you know. Well, you might feel better Sunday morning, you know. And furthermore, I let you borrow some ibuprofen. That'll knock it out usually just like that, you know. Come on. I don't, there's a lot of times I don't feel like getting out of bed. I don't feel like going to work. I certainly don't feel like going to court sometimes on some cases that I've, especially some ones I've been dealing with here lately. I don't feel like certain things sometimes. But thank goodness the Lord gives us His strength and His, and, and a different vision, a different look away from the things of the world so we can make it through those things. And we can prioritize Him whether we're going to court, whether we're going to work, whether we're going to deal with a difficult person. See, a lot of times that's we just don't feel like going and being around certain people. They just kind of rub me the wrong way. They give me friction. I just don't like their attitude. Well, you know what? That means you need to look at your attitude. Because he doesn't say hate the other person's life, does he? <laughs> he says to hate your own life. Hate your own attitudes when they're bad. Hate your own feelings when they lie and deceive you. And I'm telling you, your, your feelings will deceive you in this lifetime. If you sit there and you say, well, mine don't, then you just got deceived. <laughs> you see? You just were deceived. If you say, well, my feelings don't ever deceive me. You're just deceived. <laughs> Jesus says to love me more than your father, your mother, your, your wife, your children, your brothers, your sisters, and your own life. He says, if you don't, you can't be my disciple. Hey, can you imagine those people that were standing there? They were going, huh. They were listening to this and they were thinking, well, we're following him. We're walking already. But he's going a step further, isn't he? No doubt there were many children of God and that multitude. They might have all been children of God. Who knows? The Lord knows. And he says, verse 27, you say, well, that's pretty tough, Brother Tim. It gets tougher. <laughs> Listen, discipleship 
a life of discipleship is not for the faint of heart, okay? Whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. He said, what does that mean? If you haven't identified any crosses in your life up to this point, then, uh, you know, it's time to start looking around. He said, well, you may be young enough to where, you know, you can't quite identify that yet. But as parents, if you have small children, you should already be able to identify the crosses in the lives of your children that they're going to have to bear. He said, what are you talking about? What about their tendencies and their personalities? I'm not going to embarrass you, so I'll just embarrass me. I have tendencies in my personality. You say, well, is anything wrong with your personality? Well, you just don't know me as well as some of those that are close to me know me. I have tendencies in my personalities that are crosses that I have to bear regularly. I've said this before, and Sister Tracy says, you don't need to be so hard on yourself up there in the pulpit. Well, I, you know, anybody wants to volunteer to let me embarrass them, I will. But, uh, I, you know, I've said, told you just a couple weeks ago, I have a leadership personality. You know, but that leadership personality can go too far sometimes, right? Don't say amen, Sister Tracy. It can go too far sometimes. I can become, like I call it, being a general. You know, go into the military mode. <laughs> you know, and just start barking orders. I have that tendency. And when I stop myself and I think, you know, I'm not bearing the fruit of the Spirit. Lord, let me speak graciously and let me be kind instead of barking orders and turning people off. Turning my own family off. That's where most of you say, I've never heard you bark, Brother Tim. But, you know, my family has. You understand? That's my cross. I have to bear that cross. See, everybody has a cross to bear. Some of us have multiple crosses to bear. That gets kind of tough when you have multiple crosses to bear. Somebody who can't control their anger. That's their cross to bear. Somebody, when, when people, and I, this has happened to me, it's happened to all of us, when somebody does something that is, is just the most ridiculous thing you've ever done, you, that they've done, you, you know they know better, maybe they messed up something that you were working on, that's happened multiple times with me. I tell you, Dad was one of the most patient guys you'd ever see being on the farm. Now, there were those few exceptions, you know, when we were working cows in the cattle lot, you know, but we won't go into that. You know, we're supposed to read his mind during those times. Just you can ask Mom about that. A little hard to read your mind. But anyway... We tear up something, you know, and Dad could have just just barked us into the ground, you know. And we tore up stuff pretty often. I mean, you know, young guys out on a farm trying to get through with things and get back to the house and do whatever we do. Sometimes you tear up things. I remember one poor fella, and I'm not going to call his name, but some of you know him. He was working for us in high school, and Dad said there is one there is one single stop. Y'all know what a stop is. You country folk know a stop sticking up out of the ground, you know, something you don't want to run over. He said, I'm not going to call his name, but he said, it wasn't me or Chris, so you might be able to figure it out. But a long time ago, 25 years ago, he said, there's one stop in that field, so-and-so. Now, when you take that 40-30 tractor down there with the big tires, you know, don't hit that stop. He hit it. (laughs) Remember that, Dad? Boy comes up crying. He was crying. and I, I mean, a young man. He was 16 years old. Dad could have taken him to the woodshed. Could have fired him on the spot. And he didn't, of course. Spoke nicely to him. Let's change that tire. Well, I wish I could tell you the end of the story was really good, but bless his heart, he went back and did it again. (laughs) If I'm lying, I'm dying. He went back and did it again. Same stop, different tire. I was ready to hit him. You know, and I was 16 too. I wondered, what's your problem, you know? Dad was just... Just one of those things. And I know inside Dad was going, you know. <laughs> he had a cross to bear that day, didn't he? He could have blown up, spouted off anything he wanted to, fired that young man. But I guarantee if you ask that young man today about the character that was demonstrated and the mercy that came forth whenever that happened to him, I guarantee you he would confess, hey, Harold McCool bore his cross that day. 
He bore it. You see how we have different crosses to bear? I'm not trying to lift up Dad. I'm not trying to lift up myself. There's many times when I faint under the weight of my cross. Do y'all do that from time to time? You just, you know, when you say things you know you shouldn't say, you just can't seem to control yourself. And that mind's spinning out of control, and I faint, and I fall down under the weight of my cross. Well, you say, well, nobody can identify me when I fall down under the weight of my cross. I tell you, there's one who can. Because there was one who was on the road to Calvary that was bearing his cross. And as he went, what happened to him? He fell down under the weight of that cross. And a man, Simon the Cyrenian, there in the crowd, was pulled out of the crowd and made to help him bear his cross. So you always remember, the Savior had one to help him bear the cross. Even a mortal man, you have one that can help you bear your cross. There's no situation. There's no thing you face. There's no situation you face that the Lord won't help you bear His cross. But if you're looking down and you're looking at the world and you're letting that mind spin and think about all the negative and all the things that people have done to you and against you and you're constantly in that frame of mind, then you're going to faint under your cross. But if you think about what the Savior did for you, that He bore His cross, then you're going to be able to stand up under that cross and bear it. Cross bearing is not for the faint of heart, is it? Now, he gives two examples here in verse 28. He says, for which of you? He wants to give you an example about the cost of discipleship. And you've heard the phrase, count the cost, count the cost. Well, that's where this comes from right here. We need to count the cost of discipleship. For which of you intending to build a tower sitteth not down first and counteth the cost whether he have sufficient to finish it? So I don't quite get that, Brother Tim. Okay, let me say it this way. For which of you, uh, whenever you decide to build a new church, do not sit down and count the cost of what that new church is going to build so you can have an idea what the new church is going to, going to cost. Do you get it now? We, we did that for quite a while, didn't we? We counted the cost of the church. And, and Brother Jim, Brother Cole, and some others, you know, we got a good figure you know, for what the general figure of what that church right here is going to cost. That's what he's talking about. If we just said, call the contractor, sign the contract, we don't even want to see the price, you know, and put this and put this and put this, and they get about halfway up with that thing, and the next thing you know, they show you the price tag for halfway, and you go, wait a minute, we can't pay for this. We should have counted the cost, you see. That's what happens with discipleship. If you don't count the cost, if you don't count the cost of discipleship, then you're going to be like this man who set out to build a tower or a church and didn't count the cost. Verse 29, he's not able to finish it. And behold, it began, people began to mock him. Look at him. He tried to start this thing and he can't even finish it. I've used this example before. There, you know, whether you believe it or not, on the way to Tuscaloosa over here, there used to be the beginnings of a racetrack right there off down in the hill, right where they built the Eagle's Wings, right next to it. And I remember when I was a kid, I was excited. I thought, man, we're going to go to the races. Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. We're going to go see some races, you know, right here on the side of 82. They had it graded off. It wasn't trees growing up in it. They had a middle cut out. They had a place to put stands. And I was thinking, Woo, when do we go to the races? I was six or seven years old. Well, then a year or two went by. No progress. Three or four more years goes by. The old bulldozer that's sitting out there starts getting a tree growing up through it. You know, 20 years goes by. And you don't even know there was a racetrack out there. The beginnings of a racetrack. And I th- I don't know who that man was. Some of you may know who he was. But I think, huh, he must not have counted the cost. You see, he jumped in there and started doing something. And he couldn't finish it. You don't want to jump in there and start saying, well, I want to be a disciple of the Lord. Until you count the cost of being a disciple of the Lord. As a matter of fact, you saw one of the steps in counting the cost of being a disciple of the Lord here this morning as we went down into these waters. That is a part of the price of being a disciple of the Lord. It's to follow the Lord in New Testament baptism to say, I believe in the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And with that, we pause due to the constraints of time. I hope that we can see 
how the Lord has a very simple message and a simple understanding for us in his word. As children of God born again of the Spirit, we are disciples of Christ when we forsake the things that get in our way from serving Jesus and continue in the Word of God. I hope we can see this distinction, and I hope it's a blessing to us. May the Lord richly bless you is my prayer.